Good morning, Long Hill Chapel. It's a privilege to be able to share with you again this morning. I wanna share something with you that you might already know about me. I am terrible at sports. Sports and I have a complicated relationship. And what I like to say is that my body is bad at sports because intellectually my brain comprehends basketball. I understand soccer. I understand how to play baseball, but then my brain needs to outsource that information to my body and it never works out very well because I am not a gifted athlete. And maybe you think to yourself, well, didn't you play sports as a kid? And the answer is yes. I had two seasons of Little League Baseball and a half a season of roller hockey, which confirmed what I already knew about myself, which is that I am a lover, not a fighter. I don't want to do this. I never made a hit. I never scored a run. I never made a goal. I'm what's called lovingly by my family as accidentally athletic, where if something happens, it's not because I meant it to. But one thing's for sure. You couldn't fault me for my effort. Man, did I try. And it wasn't that I didn't give my all. I did my best. Trust me, I did my best. I tried. But after trying and trying, it became clear to me that some things would never change no matter how hard I tried. And I feel like some of us feel like that in our lives, that maybe physically, maybe emotionally, maybe sometimes even spiritually, that you've tried. You've put in the work, you've put in the effort, and yet some things don't change for you. Some things will always stay the same. And something's happened to us over time when we're trying and trying. Something happens to us, we lose hope. We lose hope that anything could ever be different. Maybe it's that child that you've prayed would come back to church. Maybe you've tried putting yourself out there with no response. You've tried stopping habits that you've engaged with for years. And yet, nothing clicks. It's not that you haven't tried. God knows that you have. And when we engage in that attempt, we end up paralyzed. And maybe that's where you're at this morning. But I think there's a powerful encounter in the book of John that we're going to look at as we wrap up our Sinners and Saints series, an encounter I think we are also invited to this morning. So before we dive into it, let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, we're asking for a miracle this morning. Not out of our attempts, not out of trying, but out of trusting in who you are. Would you open our eyes this morning? Amen. Now, our whole discussion this morning is going to be centered around this one thought. An encounter with Jesus is an invitation to reorder. An encounter with Jesus is an invitation to reorder. Now, one of the things that's always fascinated me about the person of Jesus is his acute, meticulous nature of timing. Everything he did, from the feeding of the 5,000 to the hours on the cross, had an awareness of detail and how that detail was perfectly measured to bring forth the kingdom of God. And we miss some of this with our own lives as we move from moment to moment, day to day, year to year. We even miss this a bit when we simply read through a linear narrative of Scripture. But Jesus' ministry was only three years long. That's not a lot of time. But it was specific. It was measured. And it was detailed to accomplish God's purpose in the world. Now, having said that, and with that in our minds, it makes certain phrases within the gospel jump out, like the passage we're going to read this morning in John chapter 5. Let's look at it, starting at verse 1. Sometime later, 
Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. Jumping down to verse 5, one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? So before we dive in, just a quick background around this pool. This is not a resort where someone is bringing you a drink with towels and an umbrella. A better way to understand this place is like a hospital. This is a crowded place. It's busy. It's chaotic. Verse 3 says, a great number of disabled people used to lie here. And verse 4, which isn't in the original manuscript but was added later for context, shows us why it's chaotic. It says this, From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. And so there's pushing. There's shoving. There's chaos. If you can get into the water first, you would be healed. And that puts certain people at an advantage over others. It says the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed were there. So if you were blind, you could feel your way to the pool. If you were hearing impaired, you could see when the water was being stirred. But paralyzed? I mean, even if you could get to the pool, there's a strong chance that someone's going to shove or pull you away. You were powerless. You were on your own. And so like we mentioned, Jesus is on a timeline. And there was a limited amount of time to do what he needed to get done. And so he comes to this pool, and I'm sure the disciples are wondering what he's doing, going on the Sabbath to this pool where all the disabled people are. And verse 6 has this interesting word. It says, when Jesus saw him lying there and learned. Pause. I didn't think Jesus could do that. I didn't think the wisdom of God, the very nature of the divine manifest in the Son of God, could not know something. We, of course, believe that God and his expression in Jesus to be omniscient, to be all-knowing. And so what this must mean is not that he was capturing new information that he didn't already have, but he was inquiring for a reason. It's almost as if he rolls in and he's walking around and asking about people's conditions, becoming aware and intimately familiar with the disabled people's situations. And he's on his way to a feast, a celebration, but he stopped to seek out someone who needed an encounter with his presence. And church, I believe he still does that today. But what he learned through his inquiry is something powerful. It says the invalid had been that way for 38 years. Now, I'm 32. That's close to the entirety of my human existence. That's a long time. That's a lot of days hoping to be close enough to the pool. That's a lot of weeks praying someone wouldn't pull you away. That's a lot of years praying for a miracle. It doesn't say how old the man was, but it's long enough to realize that this man had lost hope. Nothing's worked before. This is just my lot in life. Nothing will change. And you see, having this context is important because it puts the interaction with Jesus into perspective. Let's look at it in verse 6. 
When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Now the response is understandable, but the question seems ridiculous. After being in this condition for years, it's clear to me that there's a bit of attitude in the response, but the question seems cruel. That Christ, the expression of God's love, would stand over a man who couldn't move and ask him such a ridiculous question. And yet for some of us, this is exactly how we see God. We really picture God standing over us in our minds, our concept of God as if he's saying, you don't want it bad enough. If you would have done it differently, you wouldn't be here by now. Are you even trying? That's what God sounds like to a lot of us. And so it's no surprise that when we hear Jesus say, do you want to get well? It's sort of said with a snarl, like, do you even want to get well? Are you serious? Do you want this? But when has Jesus ever taunted someone into transformation? That's not the Jesus I know. You see, tone is everything. That's why you can't text every conversation. And so why did he ask? Why did he ask the man, do you want to get well? Well, before he could help the man walk, he had to help him want. That's the first thing that's reordered in this encounter with Jesus. Before we can walk, we need to want. And for some of us, we are in a season where God is dealing with our desires, our wants in this life. This man had finally gotten to a point where he was tired of trying, tired of putting himself out there, tired of risking, tired of wanting something different. And that fatigue leads to apathy in our situations. And that's exactly what Jesus needs to heal first. There's an old saying that you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And that means that you can make it easy for someone to do something, but you can't force them to do that. And you see, Jesus is very much like that. He never forces us into healing. He never forces us into transformation, but we have to want it first. Because when things are the way they've always been, we get comfortable. When things are broken and fractured and we've tried to fix them unsuccessfully, what we end up doing is figuring out a new way to live with the disability, with the dysfunction. We become identified by our disability. And maybe we don't even know we're doing it. And I'm sure this man had a system for how to survive without ever having to move. He had a way of eating. He had a way of surviving, of functioning just by laying by the pool. And so when Jesus comes to him, what he's asking is not meant to inspire motivation. What he's asking is, are you okay with the way things are right now? Do you want something different? Because like we said, Jesus will never force himself into your life. But the first step, whether it's healing, salvation, prayer, you name it, the first step is always desire on our part. He's always willing, 
but are we? Do you want to get well? And so the first question Jesus asks is not one of condemnation at the circumstance. It's an invitation to unearth the desire for change. And so before we can walk, we have to want. The passage continues in verse 8. Let's read it. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. You ever hear the phrase, which came first, the chicken or the egg? It's a riddle that's not meant to really have a clear answer. There are pages upon pages of dissecting this on the internet. You don't need to do that. The psychology, the science of the question, but let me clear it up for you. Which came first? It doesn't matter. It bears no weight on your day-to-day living. It has no effect on your doctrine. It won't play into your theology. But some things in life and their order do matter because it frames how we see the world, it frames how we see ourselves, and it frames how we see God. And what's interesting is the way that this healing has been explained in commentaries and texts throughout history. One interpretation is that the man's healing was his reward for obedience. That because he did what he was told, he was cured. But the problem with that I see is manifold. First of all, that's not what it says. It says he was healed, then he got up. Not the other way around. Secondly, if he could have been healed by trying and doing, it would have happened by now, wouldn't it? And some of you are thinking, well, what difference does it make which came first? It's the chicken and the egg all over again. The result is the same, isn't it? No, it's not. One says he obeyed, so he received. The other says he received, so he obeyed. And this understanding of healing, of transformation in our lives, frames everything because if we only receive transformation from God because of our obedience to him, that's religion. That we get something for doing something. And some of us approach God in this manner too. Yes, Jesus did all the work on the cross. And now all we have to do is follow all the rules. We do our reading. We pray three times a day. We come to all the meetings. And hear me, these are good habits. But when we don't receive what we think we deserve, we attach God's transformation in our lives to our behavior. And that's not what grace is. And here Jesus is displaying grace. He's displaying relationship. He's showcasing that it's not about trying harder. It's about trusting more. And some of us think that if we keep trying, if we keep doing, then the breakthrough will come. But Jesus' invitation was not to keep trying. It was to start trusting The man even says that in verse 7. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me in the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. He's saying, yeah, I want to get well, but you see how hard I'm trying? And Jesus is reordering everything. He's saying, yeah, I see how hard you're trying. Now, will you trust me? The second reordering that has to happen is less trying and more trusting. Some things in our life will not come 
because we try, only because we trust. And the trust comes before the transformation. Now, that doesn't mean we don't work hard. That doesn't mean we don't put effort in. But the source of our transformation is not contingent on the work. But there's a third reordering that's happening in this story. There's another level to this entire narrative, and it's the timing. When did the miracle happen? On the Sabbath. Well, what is the Sabbath? Well, the Sabbath is the day of rest. The Sabbath is the holy day. It's the day where you do no work. But throughout years of practicing spirituality for the Jewish people, by creating many laws that defined work, religious leaders made the Sabbath more of a burden instead of a blessing. And so what was designed to bring clarity brought confusion. What was designed to bring liberty brought more bondage. What was meant for life in many ways brought death. Within the multitude of things that Jesus had to do in just three short years of ministry, he makes time to stop at a disabled hospital to heal one man, to heal his hope, to heal his desires, but he's doing it on the Sabbath. And so the moment that Jesus told this man to pick up his mat, he was telling him to break the Jewish law. Why? Well, the reason Jesus showed up for one person was so that he could reorder an entire religious framework. Jesus shows up on a day he's not supposed to, overturning a broken system that confronts the idea that we can work and earn our salvation. You see, the system is rigged. Religion is a rigged game. It tells you that you can do things in order to... to earn redemption and transformation. And when it doesn't deliver on those promises, it encourages you to dig deeper, to keep trying. But then you never find it. And then you become apathetic, apathetic in your attempts, and you never experience freedom. And then you become paralyzed and you lose hope. It's a vicious cycle. It's a rigged game. But Jesus comes along and takes time out of his day to encounter one who's given up hope to heal him on three different levels. First, he reorders him emotionally. That's his will. Then he reorders him physically. That's the ability to walk. But last, he reorders him spiritually. He breaks the system. You see, this isn't just a story of a miracle. This is a picture of the gospel in a holistic way. The last reordering in this story is from religion to relationship. Because if you think about it, Jesus could have healed him on a Monday. But he takes the healing even further and more holistic by speaking to the system that would deny the healing unless it was done in a specific time, on a specific day, in a specific fashion. He reorders the religion, and now he calls it a relationship. Now there's access to him without the prerequisite. Let me give you a concrete example of what this looks like. In my professional job, they can reach me anytime for anything, Monday through Friday, between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. I don't work nights or weekends. There's a limit. My church family, you, can reach me anytime for anything Sunday through Thursday until 9 p.m. and most of the time on Saturday, but there's a limit. My children can reach me for anything at any time, period. There's no system. 
There's no rules. There's no limits or barriers that they're ever going to come up against because that's relationship. And the motivation underneath that relationship is love. Love doesn't put up a structure. There's no line to get into. There's no trying harder to earn my affection. And Jesus reorders our relationship, and he says it's not centered on the rules. It's not centered on the religion. It's centered on love and grace. He says, do you want things to be different? Because they can be. And then he invites us into healing, not because we're trying harder, but because he invites us to trust him. And then he says, oh, by the way, there's no hoops to jump through. Just come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. It's Matthew 11. And so wrapping this up, how do we then live this out? What is the application for us? Well, it's in verse 8. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. The first way that we begin to live this out is to pick up our mat. Pick up your mat. You see, there's something very easy to overlook in this passage, and it's the phrase that Jesus chooses to include in his response. He says, pick up your mat. Now, was the mat necessary for the healing? Was it needed to ensure that the healing happened? Probably not. So why does Jesus include it? My opinion on this phrase and its inclusion is that it's providing something, ownership. You see, the device that limited this man, that identified him in many ways, what was supporting him in his time of disability, Jesus comes along, he heals the man on the many levels that we've mentioned, but then he invites the man to no longer be bound by the thing that wants to find him. He invites him into this process by telling him to control the thing that once controlled him. By recognizing that the struggle is no longer having the final word. He picked up his mat. And for us, where is it that you need to pick up your mat? Is it the mat of your will? Your desire for change because you've given up and you've lost hope? Do you believe that things can be different or is this just your lot in life? Do you have no one to help you in the pool? Some of us need to pick up our mat and start believing that things can be different because of Jesus. Maybe it's the mat of your trust in your attempts for transformation, how hard you're working. Have you tried this program and that course with little to nothing to show? Have you exhausted all of your effort working towards something? Some of us need to begin picking up the mat of our trust and place that trust in Jesus, in his power, in his ability in our lives, and not our own. Or maybe it's the matter of the relationship. Maybe we need to break down the idea of coming to Jesus if only we do certain things, if only we look a certain way, if only we present ourselves to those around us in a certain fashion. Do you see coming to God as a certain posture, a certain behavior before you can even approach him? Some of us need to pick up the mat and embrace the grace and love that is so freely offered in Jesus. Because we won't find transformation any other way. Picking up our mat recognizes that not only is Jesus the one who's doing the healing, 
but I'm stepping into that healing 100%. I'm not going to rely on my old way of thinking, my old way of functioning, my old way of living. I'm wholly trusting in him and walking 100% in that trust. And so for us this morning, we are also invited to pick up our mat, to not only receive healing in Jesus, but to then walk in that healing. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus, that salvation is available, transformation is possible, and it's found not in the things that we do, but the person that we know, we love, and we put our trust in. An encounter with Jesus is an invitation to revive those desires, an invitation to surrender, earning our salvation, and it's an invitation to step into a relationship with a Savior who loves us. Let's close in prayer. Jesus, we thank you for the transformation that is so readily available in our lives because of you. We pray that we would pick up our mat, that we would identify the areas where we've lost our hope, identify the areas where we need to trust more, and identify the areas where we need to break down the barriers of approaching you. We pray that this would be the first of many steps in your direction. Amen. Thanks for being with us today. Have a great week.